Welcome to Path to Story, a Warhammer Age of Sigmar Path to Glory podcast where we focus on the lore, rules, and storytelling of narrative play. Thank you for joining us once again as we pitch our tents, set up camp, and share our tales from along the Path to Story. Your companions around the campfire this episode are... Hello, my name is Paul, but today my name is Ananit Hiddenjaw, sadistic mistwalker of the Miasmic Morass. Mistwalker of the Miasmic Moraz. Yep. And his name is Hidden Jaw, which coincidentally is what I look like when I shave my beard. There's just no <laughs> jaw, no chin, no nothing. Fair. I've never <laughs> seen that, so I'll have to take your word for it. But yep, fair, fair. That's why the beard, that's what it's there for. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of alliteration. I love the M's. Mm-hmm. And I like that he's just like a Mistwalker of the Miasmic Moraz, and he's just sort of doing his thing, just walking the mists, hanging out, and having fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, fog stuff, so I'm getting a very British vibe in my head, like, sadistic yeah. mist walker <laughs> of the Miasmic Moraz. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I figure he's just, you know, walking around London town trying yeah. to, uh, you know, like, he genuinely feels kind of like a Jack the Ripper type figure that's been hideously uh, disfigured from one of yep. his victims. See, and I was thinking you could just use any of the, what is it now, 14 unique witch hunter sculpts that we have. Uh, <laughs> and none of them are generic. Exactly. All currently named. <laughs> Who doesn't want all named witch hunters, I ask you. Right? <laughs> exactly. You need more. <laughs> well, Will, who are you today? Well, today I am Corgoris the Fractured Conflagricant. Resolute executioner of the acrid nexus. All right, this guy is definitely a librarian of some sort, and or he has a massively fantastic thesaurus. Is all huge thesaurus. Huge thesaurus. Like you have no idea how awesome my thesaurus is. Um, it might ruin uh, where I'm from, but I imagine he's got like a little squire. Uh, which is the the little model that's a part of Catacros's big diorama, just ah, holding nice. up the scroll of the different synonyms and antonyms he should use to help describe himself. Yeah, I like it. I I yeah. love that idea. I like it. Just he's <laughs> like, do you know the Dewey Decimal System? <laughs> well, no. Let me explain it to you. Let me explain right. it to you. <laughs> It's like, I love the idea of someone who like walks into a different civilization and has to pull up all of the different words in that people's language that he can use to describe who he is to them. Oh, now now I'm getting the idea that he's actually a a phoneticist who travels mm. around finding different regional dialects. Yes. And categorizing them, right? Oh, I yep. say tomato, but you say tomato. Oh goodness. <laughs> oh oh goodness. Well, if you'd like to share your stories with us, you can head on over to our Twitter at Path the Story, or you can chat with us on our Discord at themortalrealms.com slash Discord. You can is check that out themortalrealms.com slash Discord. That is, it's themortalrealms.com slash Discord. Cool. You can also check out the other shows on the Mortal Realms Network at themortalrealms.com. We've got the Mortal Realms Story Phase to embrace the lore of the Age of Sigmar. What the Hex to delve deep into Warhammer Underworlds, and the Dogs of Warcry to cry havoc and embrace the skirmish battles of Warcry. 
Consider leaving us a positive review on your podcast platform of choice, or you can leave a tip over on our Patreon at themortalrealms.com slash Patreon. Paul, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Um, yeah? I've gotten a decent amount of hobby done this week. So uh, this week I read uh, The Last Volari. Ooh, uh, I love that book. seems like it's actually a really great book to read for the book we're going to talk about today. It is. It's very thematic and on point, actually. Uh, Multiple ways. So I, I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoy most of the AOS books. Not all of them, as you may know if you listen to the story phase. Uh, mm-hmm. But <laughs> the vast majority of them I really like. And I I appreciated this one in particular uh, because it was just a little bit different from anything else that I've read. And um, so this is a comp. I usually don't call out people's comments uh, from the discord, but Darth Alec made a comment where he referred mm-hmm. to it as a young adult book. I was just going to say that. Yeah. And I have to say like, that strikes me as absolutely what it was, but I think yeah. it was done really well. That That's not meant to be a, Oh, this is a young adult book. Oh, I, I don't read young adult books. Oh, Are you kidding me? I am an adult. Yeah. No. It, it was really well done. Um, and I 100% agree. So there's two things. One, there's a griffin in the story. And I was a little disappointed because I was waiting for Eric's undead griffin to show up. Oh. <laughs> and that didn't happen. So uh, if you're waiting for uh, Stone Monk Gamers undead griffin to show up unfortunately it doesn't happen in this book but uh beyond that that was my only disappointment was i had a very specific (laughs) expectation based on a model that somebody else has made in the mortal realms (laughs) so that's a pretty good this is my only uh disappointment in my opinion so i'll have i'll I'll toss another disappointment on there has nothing to do with the book itself except Mm -hmm. for the main character is very specifically described, mm-hmm. um, and the cover shows them. They have their cool, fancy armor, mm-hmm. their fancy twin blades, like one white, one black. Yep. And you just like know that they almost made a miniature for this character, mm-hmm. and then didn't. And I feel like I want that, but yes. we also have too many named vampire lords, so it that could be why they didn't do it. I mean. Well, so if we're going to go into that kind of territory, I think what actually this book is, is we know that Black Library has said that they did a bunch of different people, uh, a bunch of different authors. They asked them to make models, uh, essentially. So they wanted to make them make stories that would eventually be turned into models. Yeah. And I think this is Gary Kloster's uh, version of that novel. Exactly. Like, I feel like this character was made with that intention, which... Not a diss on the actual book itself. I want that model. Yes, exactly. I think you could do a fair representation um, with one of the other vampire lords, uh, but that head is going to be real hard to replicate. So Yeah. Uh, you know what? I've got the new um, Warhammer plus vampire lord with the rose uh, Castinia. Yes. Yep. Uh, I should just do a head swap and replace her... Ch- chalice in one hand with another sword and i feel like that would actually be a pretty accurate representation nice i'd like to see that that'd be super i might do that because i was Uh, wondering what to do with her speaking of conversions of undead characters oh um there is actually (laughs) exactly and vampire lords there is a character in the book that we are going to talk about today um and her name is sekhmet um and she is a new lamian vampire all right 
And I think Sekhmet might are. be a Tomb King. Yeah, sorry. Right. <laughs> We're not going old world here. Thank you yeah. for that. Uh, no, so her name is Sekar, the Fang of Nulamia. And of course, um, I got the model. Uh, thank you, GGW, a little early. And I can never, ever just like paint the model up as intended. Uh, and so I converted Sakar into a Darkling Coven's uh, character. So I took the Dark Elf Sorceress and I cut her at the waist, which is pretty easy because all she has is a loincloth, basically, uh, from the waist down. And then cut off Sakar from the legs up, which is a little bit harder because that uh, joint is a little bit different. Um, and mm. then I took off the magic staff and gave her one of the hunting spears. Um, I think it's from the Dark Elf um, chariot. Yeah, as I say, the, the spear looks familiar to me. Yeah, which is no longer in the book, uh, but uh, I I still have those bits, and so I wanted to use them, and so I was able to paint her up, and I'm, I'm really happy with it. Um, one of the things that I really was impressed by this model is that it really strikes me as a Frank Frazetta picture turned into yeah. a 3D model. And that, like, to me, it was super impressive uh, because Sakara herself looks amazing. But then when I added on the Dark Elf Sorceress, it still looked really great to my eye. And I was really impressed at how it transformed the old sculpt into a new model completely. So that yeah. was super cool. Um, well, and like the way the cloak is flying with the snake and the way you've got the sorcerer's arm like reaching out the same direction that the original cloak is flowing, like I think it it works really well. Um, yeah, and then it's been a bit since we last recorded, since we had the various holidays and the new year. And also we were kind of waiting for this book. So I've gotten a few things done hobby-wise, not as much as I should have, um, because part of it was that we... I'll talk about that at the end. What I did accomplish uh, was I painted up Ush. Apparently it's pronounced Usherin. Ooh. But I like to say Ushorin. The Mortark of Delusion. Master of the Flesh Eater Courts. And I love this guy. Um, <laughs> he's pretty he sweet. Is, he's so cool. Um, he like, when you're holding him and painting him, like he feels big but he also feels really small because he's on a mega gargant sized base and he's not anywhere near mega gargant sized but as soon as you put a normal human next to him you realize oh man this dude is huge he can still grab a person with his bare hands and like bite into them like an apple now you know what the problem um, is hmm. you've convinced me that somebody needs to make a mega gargant usheron conversion they should well it exacerbates my problem of my Ghoul lore before this point was they were controlled by a mega gargant who ate a ghoul king who believed he was the ghoul king reborn. I love that. As that a sounds great. Titan. Um, but now I'm like, well, how do I fit uh, Ushorin into that story? And the answer is, I'm not sure if I am. I might be Splinter <laughs> uh, Kingdom. I think he is the brother quote-unquote, because vampirism and all that good stuff, of that original Ghoul King who was basically outcast, because even though he's huge, he's not Mega Gargan-sized. And he had to flee, and he fled to Olgu. So everything 
I'm doing now is like basing it Olgu themed with like purple sands and black stone. Um, and I think it really works well with the yellow like cloaks and stuff. Which the yellow cloak is something I kind of always had for my ghouls. But as soon as I put it on this Ushoran model, I realized, oh, he's the king in yellow. Mm-hmm. Obviously. So I made him the keeper of the sign. And he is the master of Carcassa instead of Carcosa. And just going full uh, Haster, king in yellow, Lovecraft, Dian, even though it's not actually Lovecraft, uh, but that Eldritch Horror type stuff. Um, do you know much about Carcosa? Um, I don't off the top of my head, no. Okay. Uh, it's just this weird, like, li- in a different realm city of weird madness and nightmares and the king in yellow makes you go crazy. Very ghoul-coded. Uh, but the descriptions of the city are weird things. Like, sometimes the moon and the horizon appear in front of the silhouettes of the buildings. And it's mm-hmm. constantly changing shape and stuff. And in my mind, it's because Olgu is the realm of shadows and lies. And it's being controlled by a man whose brain isn't latching onto reality properly. So the actual <laughs> landscape is just shifting and forming as he's trying to just piece it together as he's losing his mind. That sounds amazing. So if it's in Shayesh, this is a question I have to ask. Uh, Olgu. Um, I'm sorry. Okay, never mind. All right. Then go ahead. I missed that part. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So it's in Olgu. And part of that is because the start of season two, we had the veins, which is Olgu and Gur. So in my mind, this character ran through the veins. Some of his ghouls are those ghoul pirates we have that got left behind. And now he's fully hiding out in Olgu fighting my Slaves to Darkness army. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Very excited with it. Uh, I forget. I don't know if I've shared a picture of his sign, but it's supposed to be like the version of the Eldritch sign that makes you go crazy. Uh, but it's a very just simplistic version of U- Usherin's crown and the jewel in the middle of his forehead. So just five lines and a big red thing in the middle, but it also kind of looks like a, a weird eye. So it does nice. a lot of, does a lot of work of like selling that idea of like this dude is putting this out there and it's, so filled with his delusion that it's driving anyone who sees it crazy. That, that's pretty awesome. I love that idea. Yeah. Ghouls as Eldritch Horrors, which we're talking about ghouls. So we're going to be talking about a ghoul book. But uh, before we move on to that, the last thing I've been doing hobby wise is kind of twofold. The first actual hobby I've been doing is I have been printing a bunch of these Dawnbringer coins to use as objective tokens. And I'm going to be painting them up uh, very basic gold colors. I have 40 of these things uh, because Paul and I are going to be running the Gibbering Dome Path to Glory narrative event at Adepticon again this year. And running the Gibbering Dome narrative event at Adepticon. And running the narrative dome, <laughs> Gibbering Dome narrative event at Adepticon. We're going to run it three times, people. That's right. It's not glitching out. There are going to be three different days that we're running this event. That's not to say that this is a three-day event where if you sign up, you need to show up all three days. But this is a way we found we can bring in more players to play at this event without massively increasing table size and to allow for people's changing schedules. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you are 
doing something else on Thursday and you couldn't make the Gibbering Dome on Thursday, congratulations. You now have Friday and Sunday that are available to you. Exactly. We recently opened up registrations for the Friday event. Uh, but they're at the time of us recording, it is still open. And I would ask anyone who's going to be there, they want to play narrative, there is a spot open for you. I know the Thursday and Sunday seats kind of sold out pretty quickly when they first opened. So if you are disappointed, check again. There may be a slot for you. So what I'm hearing is that we have some demand for AOS narrative. There is a demand for AOS narrative. And it's crazy because we're not the only ones running AOS narratives. I know Zach Kay, who came to the Dome last year, is running his own narrative event as well on Sunday. And I think he also uh, sold out pretty quickly. So... Exactly. The people are out there and they want to play. Mm-hmm. Which is awesome. Uh, it's always yeah. awesome to see people that really want to get embraced in the narrative. And it's amazing to be asked to run another event uh, for it at the con. So, yeah, a good time. I, I'm very excited. I'm still piecing together my costume, which nice. I won't reveal here, but I'm ex- it's very simple. But I, I love how simple and stupid it is. <laughs> and I can't wait to show it off. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that wraps up the workshop portion of the episode. And we're going to move into the war room. Which, in the war room, we talk through the battles we face and chart the progress of our warlords. Um, I got two games in, uh, in this time. And I know, Paul, you've been busy with the holidays. I am correct in saying you probably, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, um, I didn't get anything in past Mortal Realms Con, but hopefully in the future. Yeah, here soon as we <laughs> go into our event. Exactly. Um, yeah, first game we played, well, I played, uh, was with Joe Celtic, patron of the network. Uh, I was playing my Slaves to Darkness, and he was playing his Stormcast Eternals, and we used the brand new Open War cards from White Dwarf issue 494. Uh, they're actual cards, so we ended up drawing them, but there is a table in that White Dwarf issue. And I really like the open war generator from the core rulebook, and this just adds even more options for players. Uh, the battle was pretty f- simple and fun. I actually was running a Bellacor list, and he was running a Krondis list. So we had two really big name characters kind of smashing into each other. That sounds amazing. Oh, it was so much fun. Um, And some pretty fun things happened. Uh, It was just like control objectives and we deployed on the short edges. So like very far away from each other. He had set up a shooting line. So anything that got close would get shot at. And he used uh, Lord Relictor to teleport Krondis into my back line. So Ah. (laughs) I, yep. Which is a trick I've done to Paul many times, and it hurt. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> it it was just, it was the full. So that's what that feels like. Uh, moment for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, Krondis really the spell casting on him is really good. Uh, kind of tore through my lines, but I was super proud because the one of the last models I had in there besides Bellacor fighting him was. The leader of my Chaos Legionnaires, the the Curiarch, and he's the one who got the final blow on the dragon, which is just great. Think of it just like the man-at-arms for this evil, noble Chaos slaying a dragon. 
very proud of himself. And then Krondus exploded. <laughs> uh, and just nuked that whole portion of the board. That uh, sounds like a great battle. Yep, yep. Bellacor got taken out. It ended up being a, a full loss. But, yeah, that was a little bit rusty. And I just had more fun than anything playing with the big name characters on the board. Because that's not something we tend to do with Path to Glory. Absolutely. Uh, second game, I played against uh, one of the locals, username John Jambo. Uh, he brought his Ideneth Deepkin army, and I brought my Flesh Eater Quartz, led by the Duke Bonard, my Abhorrent Gore Warden. And I, I feel like John Jambo has recently paid in that army, right? Yes. Uh, it was all beautifully painted. Um, it looks phenomenal. It's Got like a like a purple armor scheme with like blue clothes, which is similar to what like I was doing with my Ideneth. But then the basing is very like autumn colors, and there's a lot of, of oranges in there as well, and it just really pops. It's a really beautiful army that he's got out there. That's very cool. I I think it's one of the things where I, narrative really adds a lot to a game, but yeah. it. It's just even better when you have two fully painted armies, right? Like getting getting to grips with each other. So that's well, awesome. One and a half fully painted army. It's okay. The other half were under delusion. It's totally okay. Yeah. I mean, most of my ghouls are painted but not based. They just don't... Because they're all white-skinned and I prime white so the bases are white, they don't look painted, but I just need to finish basing them and we'll be good to go. Yeah, what happened is I try to pull a move I just saw Joe use against me, teleporting my <laughs> flayers and gore warden to his back line, and they failed to do the damage they should have done statistically with the dice, and got shot off the board, so suddenly I'm just down a bunch of points as the eels and sharks uh, came rushing forward. So what I'm hearing is, when it comes to Path of Glory battles, or narrative gaming, um, what happens when I play you tends to happen to you when you play anybody else besides me. That's what I'm hearing yeah. right here. Yeah, people are listening to the show and they, they hear that I beat Paul in these games. They will get an assumption that it means I'm good at the game. Uh, but really, I'm just using strategies that other people use better. And or I'm just really bad at the game, but I still have a lot of fun. Either one works. Yeah, well, because we're building narrative armies. And when a narrative army goes up against someone getting ready for a match play tournament... It, it's going to go a certain way. Exactly. But yeah, I mentioned the ghouls because that is what we are really going to be talking about. We've already covered the Flesh Eater Quartz battle tome in a past episode. But in this episode, as we make our way into the library, we're going to talk about Dawnbringers Part 4, The Mad King Rises. The Mad King Rises! Sorry, I had to. Of course you had to. Uh, but here in the library, we ponder the latest Path to Glory material from Games Workshop and come up with narrative ideas to field it. Paul, if you had to quickly describe the narrative parts of Mad King Rises, what kind of words would you throw out there? Uh, a lot of delusion. A lot, a lot of delusion. A lot of just kind of craziness. Um, so I, I think... This was a really enjoyable read for me, which I, I bet, you know, if you listen to the story phase soon, you'll be able to get the full uh, redux of what's going on mm -hmm. here. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of death and a lot of Nagash. 
And so I think it's going to be super fun. Um, and th- I mean, as far as we're talking to the Garan Crusade, but Will, what would you talk about in the Akshi Crusade? So the Akshi Crusade, I, uh, I mean, it's also a lot of death, a lot of fire. Um, <laughs> as far as the story goes, you're kind of dealing with death fighting death. And then the mortals just sort of being there and having to deal with the aftermath, which is fun. Even though this series is called Dawnbringers, uh, sometimes it's good to have a book that just shows other factions doing their thing and the havoc it causes to mortals who just happen to be nearby. Hundo percent. As far as the rules in this go, there are pretty much two words that I would use to describe everything we're going to see and talking about moving forward. And that mm-hmm. is the triumphs and the treachery, mm-hmm. which is so crazy um, that for book four of this series, every battle plan is a four person battle plan. Love that. So I don't good. know if they planned that, but mm, it's so good. Um, this book does see them come up with a new version of the Triumph and Treachery uh, rule set. And it is a very drastic change from how it worked before, but also just how you would play your standard Age of Sigmar games. Would that be fair to say, Paul? I think that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. It's a reimagining of what Age of Sigmar really is, I think, is a fair way of putting it. Yeah, um, and it's awesome to see them put this much effort into more narrative, more non-tournament based stuff. So that's an yeah. A plus for me. Um, yeah, reading through the rules, they really—I mean, this is not to imply that they don't do this for everything they do, but they really thought out how to actually do like a good semi-balanced four-person game. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of thought that goes into what we're going to talk about is mm-hmm. that makes me think they've been working on this since the edition came out of like, yeah, we did triumph and treachery. We did through one battle plan in the core rule book, but let's really get this right. Yeah. So forgive me if I'm stepping on something that's coming up later in the episode. No, but, go for it. Um, one of the things that I really like about this is that it's, it's kind of gone for, it's something that is, essentially a different kind of competitive play yes because instead of all objective based this is kill points based but Mm -hmm. it's kill points based based on the points units of the units and there's no half points for it so um it it goes back to very like eighth edition feel to me from uh, warhammer fantasy battles and more of a like first edition second edition feel for age of sigmar where the point is really to kill units Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to kill those units, um, you really need to be able to have some real hammers and some real anvils as well to take the punishment. And I, I think it completely changes the way that you play the game because you're not just trying to claim objectives. What you're trying to do is you're trying to actively kill your opponents, which isn't something that necessarily at first glance makes sense with narrative, I think. Uh, but I think it really actually works well for the system because. Yeah. I think one of the big takeaways is that Triumph and Treachery isn't necessarily narrative. I would really call it a different competitive play system just with multiplayer. Would that be a fair assessment, do you think, Will? 
I don't disagree. Um, the reason I've paused and phrased it like that is because it, it is listed as just like almost like op- like a just general rules. It's technically under like Conquest Unbound. It's yeah. not narrative play battle plans. This is just a game mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think it is. It's very competitive minded. And the the mention of the killing like points for killing is something that I was really thinking about because I like it as a secondary objective when you're not playing match play and you don't have battle tactics and grand strategies. Now, I'll just say every one of these battle plans has an objective you should be doing on top of just killing. It's not just we're putting you in four corners, go at it. There are things you are doing. There are objectives you should be going for. And as a secondary, we're going to reward you for getting those kills in. So you've fallen into my narrative trap here, Will. I knew it. Because I'm going to have an opposite point from you. But I I think it's going to be the same point, which is that this is something that I think Triumph and Treachery now does really well that Mm -hmm. it didn't do before, is you have this real strong competitive aspect, but then we also have ploys. Um, And we've kind of had those before, but the way that ploys work is they give you cheats. Like, I would term it another way. But there's no other way to term it, right? I mean, there some of these are nasty, Paul. Exactly, some of these are they really are nasty. super nasty. And I feel like they're super narrative of the way that they did it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just like, oh, sorry. Like I know you were going to try and shoot with that unit this turn, but I, I'm, I'm, that's not going to happen. No, you're not right. And and I think they've balanced that really well uh, because they have a bunch of different charts that tell you all these different ploys that you can do, but you can never have more than one from any of these different charts at one time. So you can annoy your opponents, but you can't destroy your opponents with the ploys. And to me, that's the super fun narrative aspect of it, is it's really about the story that you're telling and placing those together, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm going to go through some of these ploys, and I want to talk about how you earn them, which will bring Mm -hmm. us to like the main changed mechanic in this game as well all right go ahead um yeah like you said there's like the you want to shoot sorry you can't ha ha <laughs> that's just always great yes um there's one that's called caltrops which is you just have so h-a-l-v-e cut it in half <laughs> uh someone's charge roll so <laughs> oops like and you can do it you do it after the fact so like, yeah. oh yeah, I need to make I, a nine inch charge. Boom, a ten. You're like, sorry, I think you mean five. I did love that aspect. And then the counterpoint to that is like, oh, I'm gonna turn one of those ones into a six. So yep. you could really be jerky <laughs> if you really feel like it. Um, and my other favorite one is for three command points. Gonna come to that for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're the neutral player, you can pick one friendly unit to shoot an enemy unit. So if you recall from Triumph and Treachery, you kind of pick an enemy unit. You pick one of your opposing players to be an enemy for a phase. So let's say me, Paul, Harry, and Kieran are playing. Paul decides that for the shooting phase, Kieran is his enemy and Paul is going to shoot Kieran. Maybe I spend a few command points and go, you know what, Paul? I'll help you out with this one. I'll also shoot Kieran. (laughs) (laughs) 
Because who wouldn't want to? I mean, that, that's literally the point of a war game is to shoot other people. So, not to pick on Kieran, but <laughs> he if he's the enemy, that's what's got to happen. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mentioned spending command points, and I said three command points for that. You're going, Will, most people don't even have three command points in a turn. What are you talking about? Why would you waste that for this? And the huge change for Triumph and Treachery that I love is you no longer get to earn command points the normal ways. You don't get them at the start of a battle round. You don't get them at the start of each turn. You can't use a spell or a prayer or an ability to get them. Instead, when the game starts, you get 50 command points. Wait, wait. And that's it. This sounds like a very American game to me. How many command points do you get? Five zero, baby. One for each state. All right. Fair, fair. All right. (laughs) Um, but you don't get any more. Well, theoretically. And you're thinking 50 command points for five battle rounds. That's 10 command points a round. That's way more than you're ever going to use. Oh. Except you need them to buy ploys. Mm-hmm. You got to spend those at the beginning of each battle round to buy your ploys. And they found a good way to balance that out as well. Because mm-hmm. um, at the start of each battle round, if you are the person with the most victory points, you can only buy one ploy. So you have to buy a good one. Yes. If you're in last place victory points wise, you can buy up to three ploys, which talked about how cruel these things are. That gives you a huge leg up. So it's not a rich get richer type thing like I've mm-hmm. seen in a lot of narrative minded battle plans, honestly. Like, it's just like, oh, you're telling the story. You can be fine with losing. To Paul's point about this being more competitive, they found a way to balance that out. Mm-hmm. The other fun thing you can do with command points is you can make a deal. Yes, deals are super fun. This is They're a super classic fun. callback to the way that Triumph and Treachery has always worked. Yeah. Uh, a good example of deals that can be made is, let's say it's Paul's turn. It's the shooting phase. He's choosing who to shoot. I go, Paul, what if I give you three command points to not shoot me? I could also offer up, I could just give him a ploy, or I could give him just straight up victory points. Those are kind of the things you can barter <laughs> with. And, you know, Paul may say, you know what? Yeah, I'll take your three command points. Thank you very much. Also, Will, I'm going to shoot you. Because this is called triumph and treachery, not triumph and everlasting friendship. <laughs> this is not your Care Bears Warhammer. That's what yeah. I'm hearing. <laughs> Um, which I love. They they managed to fit a treachery mechanic into Triumph and Treachery. Mm-hmm. Uh, da, 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 looking at it. Yeah, that's the general uh, scheme of this game mode. Uh, so you got four players. You're constantly rotating through. And the important thing with Triumph and Treachery is like if you pick someone to be your enemy, everyone else is neutral. You cannot affect them in any way shape or form they're essentially terrain really annoying making snide comments but they're essentially terrain yeah like if you have an ability that has like an area of effect they're unaffected still you Mm -hmm. can't move within three inches of them you can't target them or anything like that um i could be wrong but i think the core rulebook triumph and treachery you picked an enemy for that turn or was it every phase it was remember? every phase was every phase okay if i remember um, correctly yeah but and, and they maintain that for this so it's every phase 
And it's interesting because you all you different armies have different abilities that happen in the hero phase. Mm-hmm. So like, oh, you know, you can fight in the hero phase or move in the hero phase or do this or that. If you don't have anything like that, if you pick an enemy in the hero phase, they can actually do stuff like dispel spells and things like that. So it's almost better to pick an enemy who's like further away who can't actually interrupt you doing stuff for that phase. Yes. But then you've got like the reverses of like you can only charge someone um, that's your enemy in the charge phase. Well, then obviously that has to be your opponent in the combat phase mm-hmm. in theory. You would uh, think. Unless you, you think. literally just want to bog them down and mess with them so they can't move in the next turn. Because that would be really jerky, but also a lot of fun. That would be so funny, actually. <laughs> hey, I put a piece of terrain in front of you, and I know you're not going to attack me next turn, so I hope you enjoy the terrain that I've created out of my unit. Here you go. You're you're stuck in combat. You can retreat if you want. Exactly. But you have to choose me as an enemy in order to retreat. So yeah. have fun with that. You're not going to charge your actual... Yeah, no. Like It, it makes for some real fun abilities. Right, I think it's super great. Yeah, and so there's there are reasons why you would want to barter with someone to make these deals of, hey man, don't don't do that, please. Um, and there's uh four battle plans that they have mm-hmm. uh, that go along with this game mode. A very basic one is the altar of the gods, which is kind of a king of the hill mode. There's just one objective in the middle. You get a bunch of victory points each round if you control it, and you get your killing victory points. So it's a nice big scrum, uh, but all the other ones have their own things. Yeah, but then that also carries over into a few other fun narrative things. Mm-hmm. The big one that I love the most, um, yeah, there's a special battle plan in here that I will always describe with my dying breath as a narrative event in a box. <laughs> and it is the Wars of the Martarks. It's pretty straightforward. It's a mostly killy battle plan. Mm-hmm. But every player has to play a death army. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't say you have to have a Martark unit, but you should. Yes. <laughs> um, so you have to be Legion of Blood uh, for the Soapblight Gravelords, who of course is Neferata. Or Legion of Night with Manfred. And then the Flesh Eater Quartz with Ushorin. Either Arcan or Catacross with the Osiric Bone Reapers. And then Lady Olinder for the Night Haunt. You'll mostly follow the standard new Triumph and Treachery rules with a caveat. You don't track your command point usage. <laughs> Instead, everything is tracked by a fifth player serving as a game master who goes by the name of Nagash. Which is just amazing. That's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Like, so this is awesome. And I really like the way that it plays. Mm-hmm. Um because you have a GM. This yep. is the first time that we're having published rules that saying, hey, this is a GM mastered event. Yeah. And awesome. Like thank you, please, yes, more. Please and thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you're 50 command points. You have a guess of how many command points you have, but you don't know. Um, and in order to like buy your ploys, 
you have to write a missive to Nagash. I love that. <laughs> um, it's so good. Uh, and Nagash keeps track of all of this stuff. And it even says, it, officially in the rules, Nagash does not need to be a fair judge. You know what I really can, love uh, about this? What? That these are also your command points. Yeah. They're how you spend commands in your army. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I love the, the idea that Nagash can just be like, yeah, no. <laughs> like, no. No, sorry. I know you were going to attempt to do something cool that is the way that your army plays, but eh, sorry. No, we we actually decided you're not doing that. <laughs> um, or if you constantly are just buying plays and doing all this stuff, and you're like, final battle round, you're like, okay, he's attacking me, but I'm going to do all-out defense, and the gas just puts his bony hand on your shoulder. Sorry, but the, co- the coffers are empty. <laughs> you cannot do all-out defense. Exactly. Oops. <laughs> oopies um (laughs) there's a few cool things you can do instead of just you know the gash controlling your points isn't the only thing you can also choose to assassinate your fellow generals (laughs) you you pay Nagash, and he'll make a roll he rolls 2d6 and he adds any wounds allocated to that general Mm -hmm. if the total is higher than the wounds characteristic that person dies Love it. Which is great. You're because you, it gives you a reason of why you're gonna burn through your command points quickly, just trying to assassinate everyone. Yep. However, if the assassination assassination attempt is a failure, like all Nagash does is reveal that a, an assassination attempt was made, and he tells everybody who the target was. He does not have to, have to say which player made the attempt. But he could. He could. <laughs> But he could. So it costs three command points to do the assassination. You might want to spend four command points <laughs> to try and bribe him into silence. That sounds like a good choice. Yeah. Uh, on top of that, the other way to get victory points is your hidden agenda. Uh, each player is going to secretly roll a dice and then show it to Nagash so they know what their hidden agenda is. There are some... Um, which is the candle is snuffed, which is slay a model in the army of the player whose territory shares a long battlefield edge with your own. Basically, kill your neighbor. Boom, you get that, you get a cool victory point. It's fantastic. And they get the number of victory points for it. That one's pretty easy, so you only get the one. Uh, Some of them are even harder, uh, like topple. It gives you three victory points, and you have to slay a model in the army of the player who has the most victory points. So some of these were a little bit harder to get than others. And if you got one that may be beyond something you feel like you could do pretty easily, you could petition the gash to let you change it. He's not necessarily going to let you, or he <laughs> will let you for a price. Um, but it just shows like the weird like manipulations and betrayals that exist within the Death Grand Alliance. Absolutely. So... I know this is like a super flavorful death, triumphant treachery uh, scenario, but you know what I thought when I read this? Hmm. I would love for this to be a Karajan overlord <sighs> triumphant treachery where you're all trying yes. to grab the profit from each other. Yes. And you have a, you know, say the Conference of Madralta trying to figure out mm-hmm. who gets the profit. So 
Yeah, and since most of these hidden agendas are slaying specific model types in the game, mm-hmm. I feel like you don't even need to change that table with Caradron Overlords. You just call them your bounties that you're hunting. Yeah, or... And I think that fits the narrative really well. You pay them, and they become part of your army. Ooh, I like that. Uh, two other thoughts I had for this, because I had the same thought of, this isn't super death-coded outside of, they call him the Gash. Um, yes. And the assassination betrayals. Very little needs to be changed for this to be chaos focused. And you've got the different branches of chaos vying for glory under the eyes of the gods. I would love to see this as a Skaven battle plan as well. Oh my god, that'd be so good. <laughs> With uh, Each one has your own uh, rat demon, right? Like you've each got your own demigod on the table with you that would be super fun i think that'd be super fun especially like the amount of betrayals and backstabbing is so scheme coded um another thought i had was that this would be a cool way to do the like the coliseum that sigmar has to train all the stormcast and so it's like teaching like the forces of order how to fight and like kind of going up against each other i think would work really well and then instead of the gash it'd be sigmar overseeing everything going on yeah and then the the last thing with this battle plan is that there is the favor of nagash which is starting from the second battle round moving forward uh and everyone kind of sends their missives to purchase their ploys nagash picks one hero to receive his favor and that hero gets a ward of a four up it says note it's entirely up to the player's discretion how they choose to get Nagash's favor, and it's entirely up to Nagash how he hands it out. Sounds amazing. Yeah, like I said, that's a narrative event out of the box. I, with the Shorn painted up, I have a Catacros who's started to be painted, I have an Olinder who's started to be painted, and I may be looking for a Manfred that I want to get and and lean that way. <laughs> That'd be and awesome. Like, run this for people and just be Nagash and just hand them. Because I have about a thousand points for all of these armies. So just hand them to folks and say, hey, we're going to run this. I'll teach you the game. I'll be Nagash and you're just going to have fun and roll some dice and be jerks to each other, which is how my (laughs) my board gaming group plays games normally anyways. Sounds amazing. So good. The next section of the book moves into the story of Dawnbringers itself. Uh, We kind of talked a little bit about the Akshi Crusade, about how it's kind of death doing its thing and everyone else dealing with it. Uh, So the interesting thing with these branching quests that they have in this book is it's not based on whether the Cities of Sigmar person wins or loses. It's just kind of based on their ranking and the battle plan and the way they have this set up is they would prefer if for this entire section of the storyline you had the four the same four players playing each game but it's not a requirement and you it says you can just have people swapping it out as needed uh to continue along the story the cool thing is some of these battle plans have different roles for different armies if you have them Absolutely. So, for example, if you're doing the Garan army, it asks for two death armies in one of the mm-hmm. scenarios. So it'd be two death players plus a Cities of Sigmar player plus a wild card. Yep. And that seems like it'd be pretty fun. Yeah. I'd be interested in seeing like what 
it looks like if you're running with the the recommended options for everything. Um, so like the the first actually battle plan is just you've got cities of Sigmar folk, and then everyone else is just kind of around, and cities of Sigmar person is just trying to hold the middle for the first few rounds, and then they're trying to get to like the far edge for the next few battle rounds. For everybody else they're just getting their kill points. So everyone is having this huge scrum and then you've got these humans just trying to like make their way through the mosh pit to get to the other end of the concert just to get out of there. (laughs) Which is a lot of fun. And so it doesn't inherently give you bonuses for killing the humans, but you know they will get more points if you don't. And it kind of matches with how the story works for the Axie Crusade of like, yeah, they're not necessarily our enemies, but they're going to do stuff we don't like if they're here, so we're going to mess with them. But they're sure as hell not our allies. Yeah, they're not our allies. Like, I tell you what. Uh, and then on the Garand side, I feel like these are a little bit more flavorful because they're the ones that tell you to get these armies. Because uh, the first one is the cities of Sigmar folk. They're just trying to get past this huge wall of bones. And so you've got uh, preferably Osiarch player kind of playing the defenders of this wall and the Cities of Sigmar people being the attackers. You've also got two other factions. And so two teams, but they're not really teams. You've got an Osiarch person and a wild card as defenders who still want to kill each other. And Cities of Sigmar and someone else as attackers who still want to kill each other. And you've got those kill points, but also defending and attacking the wall at the same time. But until that wall comes down, you're attacking the people on your side of the wall. So I think it's a really interesting way of like, that's where the treachery comes from. Like, oh, yeah, we're both defenders. I'm going to stab you. Why wouldn't you stab them? That was the real question. It's really, if you're here, you're you're stabbing. That's really the name of the game. It's Warhammer, not Wallhammer. Again, this sounds like an amazing Skaven scenario uh, where you're on opposite yes. sides of a chasm and just trying to kill your enemy just to get across and try and kill the other enemy. <laughs> just trying to get across to kill that guy. I love that. It reminds um, me of that short story that they just released for the Dawnbringers about the two Warplock engineers fighting each other. They're fighting what they're fighting each other so then they can then betray their warlord so then they can attack another enemy. So you've got four factions right there and they're all just infighting. <laughs> um, but my favorite battle plan outside of the Nagash one in this book is called a feast in a fell court because it really makes the flesh eater courts sort of the main character of this battle plan, which is so good. The way it works is if you have a flesh eater court player, they are the host of this grand feast. And if you don't have them, anyone else can do it besides the Dawnbringers. And it really is just a, a kill game. The issue is, If you are a guest to this feast, you cannot kill the host until they declare you an enemy. And the host is situated in the middle. So if you're the host, you kind of want to go last in the the first battle round. So you don't have to declare any enemies yet. And everyone else has to sort of skirt around you to start damaging each other. And then you get to pick who the feast is going to be when you finally pounce when it's your turn. I love the idea of this as a corn scenario where you're Ooh. just trying to get through without eating any of the food because then you'll be a cannibal and then you'll be corn. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you're just trying to survive 
and they're just trying to bring you in. I think it would also work as Slanesh because I feel like they would also host a, a sort of grand, lavish occasion uh, and then lure you in with your enemies just to rustle up some drama and try to get you into that feeling of excess. And that kind of wraps up the battle plans and sort of the narrative games you would play in this book. But it doesn't wrap up all the narrative options we have in this book. Because before, Paul mentioned the new named character, Sakar, And she comes with her own army of renown. Well, she also... Mm, I'm trying to find the right way to word this. Because she doesn't have her own army of renown until they fack it. Uh, but you have Sakar, who's this really cool character with a really cool snake. She's a scion of Nulamia. And then there is the Scions of Nulamia army of renown. And its composition is just vampire heroes, fellbats, and dire wolves. So you've got vampires who are now battle line and all of their little minions. Which means you can have an army of just pure vampires. This is literally the army that was in the last Volari, which is why I was yeah. like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like it's it's perfect for the yeah, like it ties in amazingly. Nice. Because you can just have a bunch of vampires and all their minions going on. The reason I say this isn't necessarily Sakar's army of renown, because it does specify the vampire heroes that can be added to this army cannot have a sub-faction keyword. And they put that in so like the Virkos vampire lords can't come because it's not their town. It does technically mean Sakar can't come to the army of renown either. <laughs> which I assume is going to get fact out. Um, uh, but the cool thing about this is like, you just start getting free things back um, instead of having to use spells or all of like the stuff that normally comes with the soul blight grave Lords to bring back units. They just start healing. You can have another spell to add models and then your vampire heroes still get that bloodthirsty or empowered mechanic from the Legion of blood. So if you really just want to focus on like swarms of minions and your vampire lords, I think this is a great way to do that and to kind of tell those narrative stories. Like with our Cities of Sigmar episode, I said, you could do, you know, all battle mages. What's stopping you? All vampire lords. Go for it. They're battle line. So it kind of removes like their previous restrictions. And I just think that's fun. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the... Uh... They had a, a battle plan in Warhammer Fantasy Battles where it was just seven Bretonian knights on foot wrecking face, Ooh. and this is exactly what it sounds like to me. Yeah, take seven vampire lords and just get some wolves and go have fun with it. Uh, the other really wild thing in this book, and I think the last thing in this book we're going to talk about, is the regiments of renown. Uh, they call them the Hands of Nagash. Previous regiments of renown have been a collection of heroes, uh, sorry, one hero and then one to three units. And they've made those unique and they've come up with named versions of those heroes. But it's, you know, an arch revenant for the Sylvaneth and then the archers that go with it. And then they gave those characters names. This is a very different tactic where they are regiments of renown for the different Mortarks where the different Mortarks are in the regiments of renown. Neferata's Royal Echelon isn't just some new vampire lord character. 
is Neferata herself coming in and wrecking face, which is great. I, it, hers is more specific to match play because one of her abilities is specifically about battle tactics. I've seen some of the chatter in that field, and they're talking about how she's too powerful, it's too strong. Being able to change her battle tactic mid round is like too good. But over here, where we don't have battle tactics, that ability is literally worthless. So that's fun. Exactly. <laughs> I hear people like, aren't, aren't you upset? Like, why would I be upset? It does nothing. <laughs> they really need to give her a buff, if anything. <laughs> um, the, the cool thing overarching about these regiments of renown, though, is that because the way they work, you can ally them in to other death armies. So there's a scenario that exists now where I want to play my flesh eater courts and I can bring Catacros along with me, even though those armies are not normally allies. And so I can have two Mortarks wrecking face going up against the enemies of Nagash and telling them who's boss. I can just imagine the fighting between the two players playing the different Mortarks. Or oh my gosh. if it's you as one player, you have to argue with yourself. Yeah. Um, Cause I really, <laughs> I, and I always mention Ushorin and Catacros because I feel like those are two characters that I want to see interact with each other. One is this, he was just a dude who was really good at doing war and very structured and very organized to the point that Nagash gave him like legions of armies out of his just respect for his skill and his discipline. And then Ushorin, who Nagash really wishes would just kind of go away at this point, who just keeps on gaining his own followers, has no discipline whatsoever, is just the wild card of all wild cards. And I want to see them interact together and like team up in the buddy cop film to take down like chaos or to bring down the gates of heaven. Speaking of Catacros's Regiment of Renown, uh, it's him and then six Immortus Guard. And their thing is they kind of lock down objectives. Enemy units with wounds characteristic three or less cannot contest objectives that they're within six inches of. So for me, that actually works out with my list because I just have a bunch of flying ghouls who will fly out but don't really hold objectives well. I can just plant them on my obje objectives and let my ghouls do their thing, which is really nice. It sounds like they've really put a decent amount of thought into how these Mortarks actually play as well, which sounds good. Yeah, because when you're balancing the whole army on its own, while the Mortarks are like huge, almost god-level characters, they're pointed as if they're god-level characters. They're going to be the foundation of any army that they're in, but they also need to create the faction to work without them, especially for Path to Glory, where you can't bring unique people as your general so what these regiments of renown let you do is go yep the army may be balanced to not have them but now we can tweak everything because we know they're here and we know they're losing some of those army abilities ushorans is a great example of that for the flesh eater courts you need to like achieve your noble deeds and if you achieve your noble deeds then within a 12 inch radius you people get plus one attacks of your heroes. But for this regiment of renown, Ushorin just gets that. So his bonus from this regiment of renown is actually kind of better 
than it is when he's within his own army. (laughs) And it works the same way with his resurrection mechanic. Because in that, you need to spend those noble deed points to bring back a destroyed unit, and that unit comes back at half strength. Here, you don't need to spend anything, and just at the end of your movement phase, you bring back a unit at full strength. You just can't do it to the same unit twice. That sounds a little powerful, weirdly enough. It is. Like, it's actually really good. I, It's almost better to have him as a regiment of renown than to bring him with Flesh Eater Courts himself. Because you're not just fighting Ushoran and his 10 Crypt Guard and 3 Morpeg Knights. It's realistically 20 Crypt Guard and 6 Morpeg Knights. Just like doubling the size of that regiment that he's bringing. Yeah, and then just to uh, put a button on everything and kind of go over the last regiments of renown, we've got the Sterniest Garrison, which is Manfred von Karstein, with 10 Graveguard and 2 units of Felbats. This one's really fun because it's just teleportation mechanics, and it's a better version than the one from his sub-faction ability because you can teleport up to... uh, You have to be 6 inches away from enemies instead of 9 meaning he's way more likely to get those charges off. And then on top of that, when a unit is set up, like when you teleport them, they get plus one on their attacks characteristic. So if you thought Manfred was teleporting too much and attacking your flanks too much before, it's not going to get any better. You ain't seen nothing yet. It, this plus the four-person Mortar Battle Royale really kind of makes me actually want to get a Manfred model. And just kind of build out that regiment of renown, at least. And then finally, last, and... Oh, sorry. I completely forgot about this other one. Not last. A different person I just thought remembered is the Lich's Hand with Arkhan the Black, Martark of Sacrament. And he... That dead guy who's a dead again, but he's not undead, but maybe he's undead? I'm not sure yet. We'll they keep on out. putting out rules for him, but they haven't brought him back in the story yet. That guy. Uh, he's got two Morgast Archai, 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 and two Morgast Harbingers, which is one. I like the makeup of this regiment of renown because the new, new, this Arcan model and the Morgasts, they all came out at the, like the end times, right? Yes. I believe yeah. they all came out of the end times. So they all came out of the end times, but they all got brought into the OCR Cabone Reapers army when that battle tome came out. So this is really Arcan and the OGs like teaming back up together to, to represent those who made it from the old world. 100%. And their ability is just on a two up, they will ignore any spell that targets them. So if you're knowing you're going into a magic heavy matchup, like anything with the new general's handbook, that's all magic focused bringing these guys in as your little anti-magic hammer is pretty nifty. And now, finally, we can get to Lady Olinder, the Martark of Grief herself, with the Sorrow Morn Choir and two units of Mirror Morn Banshees. This has a lot of things in it, but a lot of these abilities are just army abilities for Nighthaunt. So you've got your classic... Uh, ignore all modifiers for save rolls because they're ethereal. They can all retreat and charge. In Battleshock phase, if you're within three inches of them, 
sorry, you can't issue or receive commands. So it's their version of like a bravery bomb. Instead of having to use all these different mechanics to bring down people's bravery, they're just telling you, you cannot do inspiring presence. Sorry, people are going to run away. And why should they not? She's super scary. Yeah, terrifying. It's the Martark of Grief. Uh, and then the last thing is, if they make a charge roll that's eight or higher, uh, they get strike first until the end of that turn. So that's pretty nifty. You're going to want, if you're taking them, you are charging into your enemies and dealing as much damage as you can. Oh, I forgot to mention, it also comes with 10 Dread Scythe Herodons. So you really are moving fast and striking hard and trying to cause as much fear as you can, especially with Strike First. You're just trying to hit them so they can't hit you back. Uh, and then, Paul, even though all of these regiments of renown, they have named Martarks, I still think there's a case that you could still potentially use these for your path to glory um, and your other narrative battles. And there are two cases that I'm going to make, if you bear with me for them. A hundred percent. So the first one is, if you're playing a death army, it almost makes sense that at some point, you have to answer the call of Nagash. Because uh, Nagash is all, and all is Nagash. And so it would almost make sense that even if you're playing a Flesh Eater Quartz army, you are suddenly obligated to work with Lady Olinder and her Night Haunt as they're going around and doing their thing. And that just kind of ties into that overall narrative of death, which is they do answer to someone. And if you are told to very strongly by, what is it, Old Bones, you kind of have to listen to what he says. Yeah, unfortunately, you always have to listen to Gash. Yeah. Uh, the other option is, we'd kind of do this with everything, but come up with generic versions of these Martarks. Um, Manfred on that cool steed, what is he but a vampire lord on a giant bone dragon and you could have these cool units of mercenary death heroes running around selling their services to the highest bidder i'm gonna go back to an old callback that we had for aos oh. which is that on on nagash the undying king he created what i've always called Immortark, uh tamra where her big thing was that she had white kings but also mortals because they were Ooh. all her family and i would love to see a regiment of renown for that that'd be super nice um and i think the closest you would get to that is with neferata's royal echelon because there you could have the female vampire lord easy enough um and you've got your skeletons but you could make maybe the black knights and use the new human cavaliers or maybe swap out the skeletons with steel helm models. Because you do lose, with her thing, the ability to bring back models. Because she's not, she doesn't have access to all that stuff. So it's the, it's a fun way to play with that idea of, oh, if I can't summon these guys back, maybe they are mortals. That sounds super fun. That does kind of bring us to the end of all like the narrative rules that are found in the Mad King Rises. I do think this is probably one of my favorite. I say this every time, 
um, but it's probably <laughs> one of my favorite books in this series. I will say this. Um, I still think The Long Hunt is really good story-wise, but we've kind of glossed over the rules in, on this show because there was Flesh Eaters that came out around the same time, but also it didn't add too many new things. It was just a continuation of the existing campaign. The reason this book is my probably my favorite is the story is top tier, especially with Ushorin, but also it adds so much to not just narrative play, but to Age of Sigmar play as a whole with the new rebalanced, redone, refocused Triumph from Treachery with the campaign mechanics they've added with the different armies and regiments of renown. And then just with the Nagash battle Royale, the amount of different toys and tools people now have available to them is phenomenal, especially compared to, I think the previous two books, which were very cities of Sigmar focused. This is a book for everybody again. Absolutely. That being said, any final notes you had on uh, the book ball? I really enjoyed it. I think the whole series together is going to make an awesome Pathagoria campaign for somebody who has the resources. Yeah. I'm just trying to think because like, I almost feel like waiting until after the last book is out and then starting just so like if in a perfect world, you would want to tailor the campaign to match the story. So you would need opposing players that have the corresponding armies. Most of the other battle plans will sometimes call out uh, an enemy army that you're fighting, but this one does like specifically say like, hey, if there are flesh eater courts, here's where they go. And if there are OCR bone reapers, here's where they go. And so I almost want to see if like there is a gaming group somewhere that has this where they can actually play through and get that story going and if it's you're during the long hunt where you've got everyone fighting against the oryx then during no in the long hunt when everyone is fighting against the ogres and the mega gargants and gyran no that i'm getting my books mixed up a little bit let me let me back that up and if you're playing in the Reign of the Brute section, when you're fighting against Oryx and Mega Gargants, then people who are playing those Olgors can be over here fighting the Osiarchs and the Flesh Eater Courts, and they could still be getting those games in, getting their own path to glory moving forward until we kind of get to their parts of the story. And I think that'd be fun just to see like how these different armies kind of interact and play in that kind of environment. Absolutely. It really gives a lot of narrative ideas but also it, it just seems like it'd be a lot of fun i also want to see people restructure this campaign system and instead of getting armies that match this campaign restructuring the location and story of the campaign to match the armies in their gaming group because i think that might be even more fun if you guys are focused on uh gur because you have a lot of people playing it the new like the General's Handbook, which is focused in Antor and the Cold, it'd be cool to change the blessings and setback tables to match that, and then change some of the narratives of these battle plans. Because some of these, they're not location-specific. I know one from a previous book is just like, set the caravans on fire. You can set a caravan on fire anywhere. 
you can have a great feast anywhere. And I also know, I think in Antor, there's like some Skaven stuff. So you could definitely do like some of these triumph and treacheries with Skavens betraying each other. That being said, Paul, any final messages before I go to sign us off? No, I, I, I really enjoyed all the different ideas and the different rules that they came up with. And, and the way that they really have made Triumph and Treachery into something completely different. And like we, we kind of talked about, a, a competitive but also narrative and super fun game mode. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out in the future. Yeah, I, I put the message in our local Discord trying to get people like, hey, let's let's do this, please. I'd love to get four people to play a game together. And we'll see if that if we get any bites. Well, dear listeners, our fire has at last burned down to embers, and we must take to the path once more. If you'd like to keep us company on the road, Paul, where can they find you online? At PJ Shard. And you can find me on Blue Sky at Sever. You can also, again, follow our podcast on Twitter, at Path to Story. And the best place to talk to us is going to be at our Discord, at themortalrealms.com slash Discord. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again real soon. <laughs>